I had a sermon that short, I'd preach it twice. <laughs> Good to see everyone this morning. We have a number of visitors with us. We're delighted that you're here, as was said earlier, and, and glad to see so many of our members as well. Uh, we've been through a period where we had quite a few folks who were ill, and uh, we're thankful to the Lord that uh, there's been so much recovery, uh, and you're able to be back with us worshiping today. And, God has blessed us with this opportunity. I wanted to just say a word of thanks to uh, Chris and to all who helped uh, bring about the, uh, um, I don't know what to call it, it started out being the uncraft party and was going to be outdoors and then it rained and it moved indoors and it just, just it was just a party, but it was nice. And we had a good turnout, we had uh, visitors for that and we're grateful for everybody for all of your efforts and uh, in making that possible. And uh, Again, for the privilege of being here today. Matthew says that Mary was betrothed to Mary Joseph. That means they had plans. They were planning to get married. And I suspect that like all couples who are preparing <clears throat> to get married, uh, they had a lot of things already in mind that they expected about life. And that they, what they envisioned their life together to be. What neither of them knew at that time, though, was that part of their life, a large part of it, was already planned for them. And that they were going to actually be actors in a drama that was planned by God himself. Right from the very beginning, things did not go as they had planned. Remember that betrothal was a legal arrangement. It was not uh, informal at all as our engagement is sometime today. Not that that isn't serious, but it isn't a binding uh, obligation. It isn't a legal situation. Betrothal was, and so Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and for all practical purposes as far as their commitment to one another, they were already married. But before the actual marriage even took place, Matthew says, Mary was found to be with child. So Joseph knew that she was pregnant, and he knew that he wasn't the father. What he didn't know was that he wasn't supposed to be. That part he didn't know. Now, Mary, according to the Gospel of Luke, already knew this because the angel had told her, but Joseph still has to find it out. He could have made a, a big deal out of it. He could have pulled in all the strictures of the law of Moses about what should be done with someone who commits adultery because that's what it would have been considered. But the Bible says that he was a just man or a righteous man, and he didn't want to do that. He was just going to divorce her quietly. It took a divorce to break a betrothal. So he was just going to divorce her quietly and, and not put her to the shame that she would have been subject, subjected to uh, otherwise. But that's when Joseph began to learn that there was something else going on here. There was something divine going on here. There was something that had been brought about by God himself. And that happened when an angel appeared to him while he was sleeping, appeared to him in a dream, and told him not to be afraid. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, he was told, because something amazing is about to happen. Something amazing is going on, but it's not something to be afraid of. 
In fact, it was quite the opposite, and that's when he learned that Mary was not guilty of infidelity, but rather that that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. God's plan was being worked out in her. God's plan was being brought about in her through the activity of God's own spirit. Now, Mary and Joseph probably didn't know it, but what was happening to them was part of a plan that had begun before they were even born. And this plan had been in motion for a long, long time. Chapter 1, verse 22, Matthew says that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Well, that prophet was Isaiah, and Isaiah had lived 800 years before their time. So what was happening with them, what was happening with Mary and with Joseph had been foretold by the prophet Isaiah eight centuries before their time. It all went back to a time when uh, Ahaz was king of Judah, and Judah was invaded by the armies of Syria and Israel coming down from the north and pressing in upon him. And they, they had surrounded Jerusalem, invaded his land, and, and Jerusalem was very vulnerable at that point. And Ahaz was scared to death. In fact, the Bible says that the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the, his people shook as the trees of the forest shake in the wind. Their hearts were shaking. You ever been that frightened? They were so frightened. They were so afraid. They were so scared of what the, uh, the Syrians and what the uh, people of Israel were going to do to them, what those armies were going to do. And they were just scared to death. And they didn't know what to do. And God sent the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz. And he said something to him that probably Ahaz found amazing. He said, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and don't let your heart be faint. In other words, what you're experiencing now, what you're feeling right now, should be just the opposite. Don't be afraid. Be quiet. Don't get upset. Don't set your hair on fire, we might say today. Everything's going to be okay. And the reason is because it wasn't going to happen. God was not going to let that invasion succeed. What God was not going to let uh, Syria and Israel overrun Judah. And so Ahaz said, the Lord wants you to choose a sign to, to assure you give you certainty, reassurance that this is not going to happen. So pick a sign, whatever it is. And he said, you can make it uh, as high as heaven or wh whatever you want to do. Make it as difficult as you can. And God will do it to assure you that everything's going to be all right. And Ahaz says, well, I don't want to put the Lord to the test. Now, he comes off sounding kind of pious, but he just sounded that way because he wasn't a pious man. He wasn't a godly man. And really what the problem was, he didn't have enough faith to ask for a sign. He didn't have enough trust in God to even go along with this. You kind of get the impression he's just sort of trying to dismiss Isaiah. Okay, yeah, I heard you. Now go away. And I'm not going to ask for a sign. And Isaiah said in anger, because you will not do this, and the Lord will give you a sign. And here it is. He said, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Now, Matthew interprets that word, Emmanuel, for us. He tells us that it means God with us. God with us. Now, now take your mind back to the 8th century B.C. when you've got Isaiah 
talking to Ahaz about the birth of this child who's going to be named God with us. And they're surrounded by armies. What do you think that means? God with us, I think in that context, means God is with us and not with them. God is on our side in this struggle. God is going to see us through. But in the context of Matthew chapter 1, it means something different. When you're talking about the baby that Mary was going to give birth to, it means God is with us. God is present in the person of this child. That's what scripture teaches, isn't it? That God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. So God was with us in that sense. And Matthew says all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said by the prophet. Now, when we hear that word fulfill in the context of prophecy, we usually think of a prediction. The prophet makes a prediction and somewhere down the road later at a later time it comes true. And sometimes you'll even see uh, kind of little tables of this, maybe in the back of your Bible or a study book or something that will talk about prophecies about Jesus that are fulfilled, uh, prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus. And there are lots of them. But if you look at them closely, a prophecy being fulfilled means much more than simply a prediction coming true. It means a lot more than that. A prophecy being fulfilled, here's the easy way to remember it. It means that the prophecy is filled full of its intended meaning. You see, when Isaiah spoke those words in Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel. That had a, that had a truth in its own context, but it wasn't the fullness of truth. It wasn't everything God meant by that. And what Matthew one twenty two is saying, this is what God meant by that. God meant that he was going to be with us in the person of his son, in the birth of this child. That is the filling full of Isaiah 7.14 of its meaning. And so the reality is that all those eight centuries, Israel had never really understood Isaiah 7.14. They couldn't until Jesus came. But now the scripture has been fulfilled. For the first time, they can understand what Isaiah 7.14 was really about. That this child is a sign not just to Ahaz, but to the world. So Mary and Joseph were caught up in this divine plan that was so much larger than anything they could have imagined. And, and so much different, probably, than what they ever thought would be a part of their lives. Now, so specific was that plan that even their son's name had already been chosen for them. You remember going through that when your children were born, you know, and trying to think, what are we going to name them? You know, and Linda and I remember we had those discussions, and she rejected Ichabod right out offhand. She just <laughs> did not want to name any of the kids Ichabod. And, um, you know, but you've seen these lists, you know, what are the currently popular names? And you, you kind of go through those and figure out, you know, which one do we want one of those, or do we want one that nobody else has ever heard, you know? And so instead of naming the child whatever the popular names are, we pick one that nobody ever heard of before, you know. But naming a child is a big thing. But Mary and Joseph didn't name Jesus. They were told what his name was going to be. The name was already chosen. 
Now, you might be thinking in context here, I, I thought he already had a name. I thought it was Emmanuel. Well, Emmanuel was actually more of a title than it was a proper name. Uh, because in Scripture, nobody ever called Jesus by the name of Emmanuel. In fact, the only time that word occurs in the New Testament is right here in Matthew chapter 1. doesn't come back after that. So that's, that's not his name by which he will be known, by which he will be called. Chapter 1 and verse 21 says this, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus is such a special name for us that we can't think of anyone but the Son of God when we hear it. Most of us, at least in American culture, would not think of naming a child Jesus. In some cultures they do. In the Spanish culture, uh, Jesus is a common name. And it is in other parts of the world. But, but uh, we wouldn't name a child uh, Jesus. Not that it would be wrong. We just probably wouldn't do it. We sing a lot of hymns about the name of Jesus, don't we? We sung some of them this morning, but there are lots more in our books. When we pray, we conclude our prayers in the name of Jesus. So significant is that name. So it's such a special name, and yet in ancient Judaism, it was a very common name. A lot of people had that name. The uh, Jewish historian Josephus tells us that four of the high priests of Israel had been named Jesus. And there are other Jesuses mentioned in the New Testament. If you look at Luke chapter 3 and verse 29, in Luke's genealogy of Jesus, he has an ancestor whose name, your English translation is going to say Joshua, but the Greek word is Jesus. His name was Jesus. Jesus had an ancestor named Jesus. In Colossians 4 and verse 11, Paul mentions a Jewish co-worker whose name was Jesus, who was called Justice. So his name is Jesus Justice. And then perhaps most surprisingly of all, Matthew 27 and verse 16. In some manuscripts, when the Bible talks about the crowd calling for this man to be spared in re instead of Jesus, his name is Jesus Barabbas. And, and we think, no, that can't be right. His name couldn't have been Jesus. And that's probably why that name got dropped out of most of the manuscripts. But in some of, the, of them, it is there, and it's very likely correct. And you can see why it got dropped out, because people thought he doesn't deserve the name Jesus. There were a lot of other Jesuses around. So the name itself at that time was not, not so special it's special to us because of Jesus, our Savior. So why? Why was he to be named Jesus? Why did the angel say this is what he's got to be called? The name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yehoshua or Joshua. And it means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. And the angel told Joseph, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's why he has to have that particular name. He's not going to be just a great leader like Joshua in the Old Testament. He's going to be the great savior of his people. And not, not just from mortal enemies, but from sin itself. He will save his people from their sins. When the angels announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds in Luke 2.11... They said this, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior 
who is Christ the Lord. He's come to save us. He's come to rescue us. And not just a Savior, but the Savior. In Acts 4 and verse 12, the apostle said, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He is the Savior. He's the one who came to save his people. When the Jewish, when the Jewish authorities threatened Peter and John, if they preached any more in the name of Jesus, they said, look, you do whatever you've got to do, but we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 5, verses 29 to 31. God exalted him as leader and savior to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. And when Paul was preaching in the synagogue at Antioch, he declared of this man's offspring, talking about Abraham, God brought to us a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Acts 13 and verse 23. Well, we've been talking about Jesus' family tree. For the last two Sundays, we've looked at verses 1 to 17, that genealogy of Matthew with which the gospel, in which the whole New Testament begins. What does this name Jesus have to do with that family tree? What does it have to do with that genealogy? We've been looking at that uh, and talking about what it signifies. And, and what it signifies is that that long line of people, of ancestors, are Jesus' people. That's his family. Those are his folks. Those are the people from whom he has descended. And as we saw last week, they were a real mixed bag, weren't they? They're an interesting bunch. They're, they're kind of like, well, they're kind of like our family tree and yours. It's a mixed bag. You know that old saying, you can't pick your family. Jesus couldn't pick his. All these people that were in it. And, and think about who some of them were. There were Israelites and there were Canaanites. And there were Moabites and there were Arameans. And there were men and there were women and there were famous people and there were people you never heard of before or since. And there were kings and there were peasants and there were good people and there were bad people. But every last one of them was a sinner. Every single one was a sinner. And then... The angel says, you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's going to save those people from their sins. No matter what their sins were, no matter who they were, no matter how insignificant or how significant they were in the world's eyes, he will save his people from their sins. And now the angel tells Joseph he's going to save those people. But even better, as it turns out, his people doesn't just include his physical descendants. It doesn't just include the descendants of Abraham. It includes all sinners who turn to him in faith. He will save his people from their sins. It includes every last sinner here today. And every sinner in the world, that's why Jesus came. Now, we need this reminder, I think, especially at this time of year. Why especially at this time of year? Because the whole idea of Jesus' birth and coming into the world tends to get romanticized, doesn't it? 
it turns into the story, a kind of a cute story, of a little baby who's born to a poor peasant couple, you know, in a manger. But the angels announce it, and the shepherds come to see it, and, and the wise men bring him gifts, and, and so it's all okay. Everything, everything's fine. It's just a great story. It's actually all the story that some people know about Jesus. What we forget sometimes is that his coming was all about sin. And Matthew doesn't blink at that. He doesn't turn away from the fact that Jesus was born into a world of sin and death in order to save us from both. And he would save us from sin and death by his own brutal death at the hands of sinners. That list of sinners in verses 1 to 17, you see, is just the beginning of that story. Because you look just a few verses after his birth is, is announced. Uh, and he's, Joseph is told, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And you begin to read uh, about a maniacal king who wanted more than anything to murder him. He wanted to kill him. So all of a sudden, this sweet story, this, this romanticized story, turns into a horror story. You've got this innocent little baby, and you've got this brutal king who will stop at nothing in order to kill him. And this king did engage in Bible study one time that we know of, and that was to try to find out where this child was going to be born so he could kill him. And when people who really wanted to worship this new king of the Jews came to him, he said, well, I tell you what, you go and find him and then come tell me where he is so I can worship him. He was just going to use them. He was going to use their piety. He was going to use their devotion to bring about his own hideous ends. And when he found out that they would not do that, that they had tricked him, then he ordered the murders of all the baby boys who were two years old and under in the vicinity of Bethlehem to be put to death just in hopes he'd get the right one. He's willing to kill them all just in the hopes that he would get one. How, how brutal, how sinful, how evil a thing is that. The situation got so dangerous that after the baby was born, Joseph had to take his, his wife and his new, newborn son and, and immigrate to a foreign land just to keep them from being killed. And he couldn't come back until that, that maniacal king was himself dead. And you see, the thing is, all that kind of same kind of stuff is still going on in the world, isn't it? You've still got egotistical, maniacal rulers who will stop at nothing to maintain power. They don't care who they use. They don't care who they lie to. Don't care who they abuse. Human life is cheap, and if you have to spend some of it to keep them in power, that's okay. And so there's all the lying and all the scheming and the using and abusing of others. And you've got all these people all over the world who are being forced to leave their homelands just to save their own lives. It's just a story that goes on and on. And all that's why Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And if we don't realize just how badly the world needs saving, we're just not paying attention. Because it's a world 
locked up in sin and death that needs to be redeemed. And just like those people in Jesus' family tree, we are all sinners, all lost, all in need of saving. And Jesus came for us too. We sang the words a few minutes ago. No palace, no jewels, no kingdom to rule, no crown of majesty, no throne, no robe, no silver and no gold, no courts of royalty. Yet the king of kings left heaven to become a lowly man. He took, left all heaven's glory to fulfill his father's plan. He still came just for me. He still came knowing all he would endure. He still came disregarding every cost from the manger to the cross. He still came just for me. He still came. He came to save you. But you have to be willing to be saved. And in order to be willing to be saved, you have to admit you're lost. You have to acknowledge that sin has its grip on you. And resolve to turn away from that sin and serve it no longer. And then to be baptized into union with Jesus. And be raised with him to a new life. That's why he came. To save us from our sins. Why don't you let him save you today? And if you're ready, come and tell us while we stand to sing. Wonderful story of love. Tell it to me.